Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> the Last Unicorn. She is a creature of legend. In an age of sorcery and savagery. Well, what have we here? <laughs> she may be the last unicorn. If you've seen other unicorns like me somewhere in the world You can find the others if you are brave They passed down all the roads long ago And the red bull ran close behind them and covered their footprints Oh, I could never leave this forest But I must know if I am the only unicorn left in the world Look and see her, how she sparkles The last unicorn The legend will live forever this one is a sister show to our Flight of Dragons podcast. By our new numbered system, that's Volume 5, Episode 3, recorded in early 2016. And it's kind of yin to the Flight of Dragons yang. Because on that show, we recruited two guests, Lauren Grieve and Jerome McIntosh, who hadn't been familiar with the film, to compare their first impressions to my lifelong intense relationship with this obscure, forgotten Rankin-Bass animated treasure from 1984. And I'm just like, racism! <laughs> Here we have a commissioned show, a movie Sharon and I have seen in the past, but only lightly. And we have brought in Theo Lee of the New Century Multiverse. Hello. And Brendan Agnew of Synapse. Hello. To elaborate on their lifelong intense relationship with this obscure, forgotten Rankin-Bass animated treasure from 1982. Now, this one is based on the 1968 novel by Peter S. Beagle, who was interested in having it adapted into a feature film for some time. He wrote the screenplay, and he also wrote the screenplay for the um, uh, Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings, which we covered in our Lord of the Rings prologue episode way back in 2012. It's notable that cramming half of Lord of the Rings, that's the guts of Fellowship and half of the Two Towers, into one 133-minute film is kind of a feat. And as much as I dislike Bakshi's Lord of the Rings, as much as it somehow manages to feel, at the same time, incredibly ambitious and lazy, and as rotten as almost every element of it is, the screenplay and how it takes what Tolkien wrote and boils it down ain't too bad. Considering the size and density of the text, to be able to do that and make it cohesive at all is a feat. Honestly, when I was picking out the things I didn't like about it, I don't think I even got as far as the actual adaptation because yeah. there's so much superficial stuff that's yeah. not good. So, honestly, I would not blame him for, for how horrible that was, but he didn't have a particularly fantastic time of that, and the studios were waiting on the, the box office for that before they actually bankrolled The Last Unicorn, uh, which he, again, adapted his own book this time uh, into making. And they, they shopped it to various studios, and he, did, he wasn't a fan of Rankin Bass and didn't like their, like, Rudolph and uh, stop-motion animation at the time and wasn't really keen on the idea, but eventually kind of... He caved on it, and as a result... See, I was thinking, you know, you could just look at Rankin-Bass's more beautiful stuff, and no, it's the other way around. This was the Rosetta Stone for some of the really beautiful Rankin-Bass works. Uh, Thundercats happened after this, as did the little scene obscure TV movie, Flight of Dragons. This one was actually released theatrically, so it should be in widescreen. I have recently gotten hold of the Blu-ray of Flight of Dragons, 
and it's in widescreen. It's a weird forced widescreen where they chop the top and the bottom off. Ooh. And unlike uh, the uh, Batman Mask of the Phantasm, which is a beautiful transfer in in both like that that like forced like zoomed in perspective, they've also got the uh, original square TV format version, which they knew much like the the Transformers nineteen eighty six animated movie, it was going to live and die on VHS in those days. So that's the full frame. That's when you get the full picture. For the Flight of Dragons disc, they just tossed on the DVD version as an extra. That is horrendous treatment. And obviously, I'm I'm amazed there was even a Blu-ray at all. And it actually looks pretty good. It just bothers me that they could have just taken a few extra hours, hours here, to just reformat it and just make two versions for the same disc. I don't get how any production company can be that lazy and asinine and asleep at the wheel when it comes to a, a home adaptation uh, for uh, uh, HD formats, because that's the last version of Flight of Dragons that will probably ever exist on a disc. So, however, if you'd like to see this film, The Last Unicorn, there is a horrible 2004 DVD, first edition, taken from a pan and scan master. In the UK, it's an ITV version, reducing the frame maddeningly to a box inside of a black screen. So it feels like inside your TV is another very low resolution TV playing the film. An oblong toilet roll. There's a 2007 edition DVD that's better, but cut out a few uses of the word damn and hell and blurred a few monsters' chests. We'll talk about them in a bit. Uh A 2011 version reinstates the cut material, and this is available as a good Blu-ray in Germany and America. If you live in the UK or Europe, the German one will work. And then there's a 2015 Shout Factory American Blu-ray constructed from a new pristine 2K scan that we had imported at great expense and found out was region-locked, so we couldn't see it in HD, though the region-locked R1 DVD was accessible on my multi-region DVD player. And it looks a hell of a lot better than our old ITV DVD. You can also rent or buy it in standard definition on Amazon Prime. Luckily, we sent that Shout Factory Blu-ray back across the ocean to Holly Dotson, who provided us with research materials for this show, and the following short essay. I'm going to give this one to Sharon. The Last Unicorn might be the most influential piece of media on my life. I know that's a big claim and a little dramatic, but it's really permeated so many facets of my life and constantly been a piece inside it. My first experience with it was renting it from Movie Warehouse and watching it with my sister before I could read. It was a movie we watched together quite a few times and was really one of our bonding experiences. When I was younger, my favourite character was the singing butterfly early on. Eventually we taped a copy of it, then bought VHS and DVD versions later. I picked up the book and many years later it was one of the first titles I picked up from Audible. The movie and book are notably different, but both capture that fantasy mixed with fourth wall breaking that Peter Beagle seems to excel at an adult with a truly childlike imagination. In my high school years, I had a really tough time as I dealt with growing frustration with my body and some horrible life-altering experiences that truthfully I still don't know how I made it through. During a small event through a friend I knew that had a class with Peter Beagle a long time ago, I got to meet him and told him I was an aspiring writer, at which point he seemed to get truly upset and looked me directly in the eyes and asked, do you write? And when I said yes, he said... You're a writer then. As long as you're writing, don't let anyone, not even yourself, tell you that you're anything less than a writer. 
Shortly after that, I published my first item, a poem dedicated to a friend I'd lost. Over the years, I've seen how much of my personality was shaped by the characters of the book. My sense of humour evolved from the movie. The hope that even in old age or dire situations that you can come out younger and more beautiful, not because you've changed, but because you've been touched by something beautiful and your perspective has changed. When I started my transition in college, the great soundtrack and so many things that happened in the movie felt like a voice of my own experience, of becoming a woman, of everything feeling new and strange, of feeling out of sorts, in a body that's wrong, in coming to accept and want the feelings. The movie is simpler, more childlike than the books that touch on some pretty deep themes. Overall, to me, this title ties into family, to my life and who I am, a light when things are dark in both movie and book forms. And Peter Beagle, if you do happen to hear or see this somewhere, thank you for touching one trans girl's life over and over again. Your words were one of my greatest companions. And we knew since Holly adores the film to that level that high definition Amalthea would find the best home with her. Now, Theo, you've said that watching this film now as an adult is wholly different to when you saw it as a child. Uh, Would you care to elaborate on that one? Yeah, uh, when when I watched it as a kid, um, it was so unlike everything else that I was allowed to watch. It, I had like My Little Pony and you know Care Bears and sh- Strawberry Shortcake, very saccharine, very shallow, colorful and bright, but not much substance to it. But this, it was so different. It had it had a profound effect on me, and I didn't realize what exactly that effect was until I I watched this again as an adult um because when i was when i was younger i was a very odd child um quiet sort of let things happen around me and it was like i i saw um i saw myself in amalthea just sort of being directed to to everything's happening around me and to me but i wasn't really i didn't have much agency and is it, people would do things around me that I didn't understand. Uh, I didn't understand myself. Uh, I didn't know what was going on. People would demand things of me that I didn't really understand. And I, I sort of grew into it, like like Holly uh, said in her essay. And I, as I sort of understood the world, and, as, and I gradually saw myself in Molly, in that... I felt like the world had just moved on without me, and I was just sort of stuck in my use, especially recently. And, and I, yeah, our, our culture and society has a tendency to tell people, women especially, that once we hit a certain age, uh, an arbitrary age, uh, that um, our usefulness is gone. That we we just Whatever opportunities we had to do something uh, meaningful or incredible or amazing is is in the past. You might as well just settle down and let the world forget about you. And the scene where Molly confronts the unicorn for the first time—that's my favorite scene in the film, by the way. It it breaks me every time I see it. It's like. <sighs> How could this amazing thing happen to me now when the world tells me that my 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 use and my usefulness are gone? You know, what 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 could I possibly do now? But 
But then Molly goes on to have this amazing adventure and have an effect on the story and be a part of things. And it... I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so, so trite as to say it gives me hope, but it, it, it makes me realize that what the world is telling me that my use and purpose are, it, it's, it's not up to the world. That, that's up to me. That, that I can still do wonderful things. I can still be a part of good, just really great stuff. And it doesn't matter what the world is telling me to, you know, sit, sit down. We, we don't want you anymore. It's like, well, no, I'm going to do it anyway. And to a lesser extent... Uh, as an adult, I've seen myself in Schmendrick. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's got a bad case of uh, um, imposter syndrome. He 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 doesn't believe in himself, but he really he really wants to be great. He really wants to be recognized for 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 being great, and he keeps screwing up. And and that's that's I I, I have a tendency to see myself like that too. And it's it's no coincidence that the the word Schmendrick comes from a Yiddish term for somebody who's ineffectual and sort of a bumbling idiot. Yeah. But kind of kind of in a fond way, but oh, oh yeah, that that guy, he's a schmendrick. So he's, he's sort of a self-effacing, self-aware kind of character. It's like, yeah, I know I'm a screw-up, but I'm trying my damnedest. If you just give me a chance, I'll if I, if I just have faith enough in myself and let the magic do what it will, something incredible might happen. It's just amazing the way the, the layers of this story and how deep it was for, for me to watch this as a child. And it was my, it was sort of how I learned to recognize melancholy as, as a mood. That sometimes it's, it's okay to be just sort of there. Is is hard to articulate because there is so many layers to this story, how it affected me, and how I've seen it through the years. Um, my first exposure was actually secondhand because this is one of the favorite movies of one of my oldest friends. Um, and I met them when they were four and I was like six, seven, eight. And I had no idea what they were talking about, but we were playing in church because our parents attended the same Unitarian Universalist Fellowship. And, you know, this this little kid was talking about the last unicorn and there's like monsters and stuff. And I'm like, oh, okay, I, I guess we're going to play this pretend game i've never seen this movie but i like these things that you're talking about and so after i you know because this was like the first night that we'd ever met you know it was like hey do you want to play the last unicorn with me uh sure and then i finally see the movie like a little while later once i've gotten to know this person better um and for for a while i because i was like seven or eight at the time i didn't even know that there was a book i just like hey this is this really cool cute adventure movie where there's monsters and magic and it's really neat and it's kind of weird because it's a it's this movie's kind of unstuck in time very deliberately um 
which I'm, I'm sure we'll get onto later, but it's not like anything that really existed either at the time or 10 or 15 years later when I, when I finally got around to seeing it, it's very singular. And, um, once, once I got around to exploring the actual book, it was, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, Theo talked about, there's a lot of layers to the story and there's a lot of layers to the things that Beagle put into it that were in the book or were only alluded to in, in the, the screenplay. Um, just the fact that like Schmendrick is basically immortal, uh, um, until he learns how to actually use magic. He's cursed to never age or die is something that, you know, you don't really get unless you've read the book, but it's just one of those weird little touches. Uh, this person, um, Robin, who's now our, our housemate, uh, they're Marion's nursery school teacher. I've known them for almost my entire life. This isn't like my story, but I know that this person has like dealt with a lot of body issues and confusion over like feeling at home in your body. And this, this was a, a piece of fiction that they kind of like used to help process that over and over again. And that's something that, you know, they specifically commented on when we were watching it just this morning. Um, I, I'm sure that there's, there's a lot in here that wasn't intentionally put in there to, uh, to relate to certain issues. Um, I mean, if anything, it's probably more meant to be environmentalist than anything else. One of the reasons that this really appeals to me is it's very easy to take elements of it and, feel very very connected to what it's saying even if it's not something that was intended to be said to a specific audience because because it's so like weird and anachronistic there's a lot of things that manage to feel very pertinent and modern even outside the context of the basic themes of the story After you've said all that lovely, heartfelt stuff, uh, let me just um, g- uh, get you to read uh, a message from a-, a deeply unappreciative person. So uh, let's see, it's add a file. I've got a little uh, Amazon review for you, a little bit of uh, uh, bad reviews against humanity here. Let's give this one to Theo. Yeah. You read it in your most <laughs> enraged, affronted voice, if you want. <clears throat> Breasts and nipples on a young child's DVD. (laughs) That's the title, folks. I have to say, was disappointed with the DVD, as was not what I expected. It is rather scary for a child under age of nine. Also very explicit pictures of trees and birds with grammatically correct breasts (laughs) on a woman. Hang on, hang on. (laughs) Grammatically correct breast? Surely that should be grammatically correct breasts. (laughs) There's three of them, I saw. Just the one. Just just the one. (sighs) I thought this was going to be a lovely unicorn story, but think it should not be for anyone under 18. Two people found this helpful. <laughs> grammatically correct breast that should be on a woman. It is, <laughs> is a grammatically correct breast one that's got a full stop on it, then. <laughs> Good God. That's a beauty mark. Um, okay. So not everyone's going to love this film. Yeah, just so everybody's forearmed. The tree has bosoms and there is a betitted harpy. 
<sighs> okay, so yeah, th- there's there's a couple of uh, uh, low reviews. Although most of the low reviews are lamenting the crappy first edition DVD. They're like, love this film, hate this transfer. So uh, uh, that that's weirdly misleading, especially as Amazon smash those old reviews into the new editions. Mm. So if there is a re-released version, it gets all the one-star reviews of the old one. That is bug nuts. That's mental. But anyway, <laughs> so uh, for, for, like I actually completely disagree with this woman. I think as a first fantasy for a child, it works really, really well. Like, you know, if it's for, like, a, a, a three-year-old, there is some darkness in there. But I can't think of much that's better than this. Maybe Flight of Dragons. But even that, it, it, it spins a few tropes on its head. So, mm, like, yeah. this one plays it really pretty straight. Same sort of category. Most of the... I, I know we'll be covering this at some point in the future, but most of the themes that are explored are also explored in the Dungeons & Dragons TV series. And My God, you love that. I do. <laughs> that is ideal baby's first fantasy. Yeah, I think so, actually. Because mm. it's basically a and d campaign with no end. Yeah. <laughs> And it's like, Dungeon Master, you said we could go. No, stay down in the basement, you will. <laughs> he doesn't talk about that. <laughs> but I think, honestly, this and Flight of Dragons being two sides mm. of a very, if not the same coin, then a very similar coin, yeah. then there is, yeah, there's much, much worse that kids could do in terms of exposure to fantasy. Also, if you, uh, How to Train Your Dragon also works. Yes, uh, Willow. Willow, um, but like there's certain like there's there's things in all of these films that we mentioned that are disturbing to kids. Mm. Here's the thing, folks: fantasy has to have scary stuff in it. If it's just the Care Bears, and even the Care Bears had scary stuff. I was going to say, my you say about you talking earlier about your earliest TV, sh- um, your earliest movie exposure being yeah. like Ghostbusters. Mine was. Oh, and, and a side note, folks: Theo's first uh, movie experience was it your first? No, but it was one that really <laughs> I remember, and, and I, I bring up often to to rag my my yeah. folks. Uh, tell the folks know, at like, home what it was. You just told us just before we started recording, just to, uh, what, what your yeah. parents went. Oh, this will be good for young Theo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was back before the internet and the the, the before times, so nobody really <laughs> had TV commercials to go by. Back trailers. in the before time, there was no such thing as reviews. <laughs> yeah, in the local <laughs> so, paper, you know. So my folks took me to see a movie when I was five. Uh, it was Gremlins. Brilliant. They didn't know it was a scary movie. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but like I said, uh, my first favorite was my first experience was Ghostbusters. And mm. though that is scary, it informed that it gave me a love of cinema. I think that there's a commonality with a lot of the bad reviews against humanity. And if you folks haven't heard our bad reviews against humanity shows, check out the school of movies, sorry, the school of everything else archive. That's one of our uh, sister feeds. And uh, they're, they're us reading through reviews like the ones you just heard. And so much of the time it's people reviewing themselves that they're effectively saying, I don't want my child to see any darkness whatsoever. And the female form disgusts me. They're fighting a losing battle. Because there's nothing of any real merit that you can show a child that has no darkness to it whatsoever. No. And what are you protecting them from? Because eventually when they see something that's a little bit dark, they're going to freak out. You're keeping them in a bubble. The joy of fantasy is that you have these melancholy tones and moments of darkness that are surrounded by 
light and uh, imagination mm. and things being brought back from the brink. That's their value. If yeah. you strip that out, you are effectively just giving them candy floss. Mm. But yeah, the, which the, the Care Bears resembles. By exactly. The way. Yeah, the Care Bears and the little My Little Pony movies, which were the first ones that I saw in the cinema. The things I liked about them were the dark yeah. elements because it's that, you know, the the fear and then the coming back from that. Yeah. But that's the thing. That's what the PG is for, so that parents can be with the kid. So when the kid gets scared, they can bury their head in your chest and you'll be like, it's okay. I'm here. We got it. Mm. We'll watch this. And they can ask questions and you can keep them focused and you can get them through a narrative that has those <laughs> dark and, and the clouds yeah. I think the objections to it come from parents who really would prefer not to have to pay attention to the thing that they put their kids yeah. in front of to keep them busy I cannot help but disapprove of these kind of parents at this crucial young age your child is a project the entertainment you show them is their food you want to put in what'll help them grow up healthy but also have fun with it you're not just going to give a kid broccoli because it's healthy, same as you're not just going to give a kid sweets because they're tasty. Presumably you want to nourish them, give them a variety, challenge their palate. And that being the case, why wouldn't you want to share that? This is the equivalent of parents who only ever cook turkey Twizzlers for their kids, or pizza rolls if you're American, and are nowhere to be found at mealtimes. Sit with them, enjoy food and films together, talk about both. For folks who actually really do love animation, who aren't aware of this one already, uh, Last Unicorn has kind of a prestigious pedigree, uh, which is not only was it the uh, the Rosetta Stone of a couple of really beautiful Rankin-Bass uh, productions, but many of the production team for this were recruited by one Hayao Miyazaki to make one of his first major films, Nausicaa, The Valley of the Wind, and then that team went on to become the early stage Studio Ghibli. Unicorn is kind of the, the proto-prototype Ghibli, which went on to make well over a dozen absolutely magnificent films. One or two of them we may one day cover. As long as we aren't badgered to cover the Ghibli films, that just delays things. It's got a very gorgeous style. Uh, there's a lot of Rankin-Bass stuff that's got, you know, they, they've got it like kind of a shared house style of animation. If you've seen Flight of Dragons or the Rankin-Bass Hobbit, um, they have these kind of weird character designs and extra lines on things and very exaggerated, uh, very exaggerated sorts of fantasy designs. But with with this, they incorporated a lot of design cues from the unicorn tapestry. And they've they've got a sensibility that's not very far off of Disney's Sleeping Beauty in terms of how they do backgrounds. Mm. Yeah. So it's still not a it's still not it still wasn't given like enough money that this this movie looks really good in still images and doesn't look great when it's moving because they're still animating on like the twos or the threes and so you don't have a lot of movement and poses and fluid animation but you've got things like this really iconic design for the unicorn that's halfway between like a deer and a goat and a horse so it doesn't look like any other animal entirely and you've got all these characters who look 
they don't look like weird and rubbery like you have with some 80s Disney characters, but they look very striking and singular. Like the the look for King Haggard is just this I mean, if you think of someone who looks like King Haggard and then you see the look of King Haggard, oh, of course, that's the only way someone with that name could look. That's perfect. Uh, best described as what Theoden looked like in The Two Towers before Gandalf lifted the spell. Yes. Just this um, wizened, old, decrepit monkey skeleton. Uh, it helps that Beagle has a great sense of prose. If, if you haven't, if anyone hasn't had the chance to read The Last Unicorn, it's not long, and Beagle's use of language is just stupefyingly good. He he describes um, the the kingdom of King Hagrid as being as stingy as late November, and huh. he'll he'll have these turns of phrase that are again slightly anachronistic but very evocative. Um, and it, again, combined with the the music, which it, you know you have these weird like pop ballads sung by America. It's it's this very strange sort of movie that doesn't quite feel like it belongs in fantasy that's talking about like Robin Hood and medieval times, but also has these completely accurate little touches. Like there are these random characters that have hats with spoons stuck in them, which was evidently an actual thing that people did during at least the Middle Ages to the to the Elizabethan era. You would just have like paintings of of like the the 12th to 16th century of people just they've got spoons in their hats because that's where you keep a spoon so you don't have to hold it all the time it's very odd but it, it looks <laughs> i went down what a was rabbit saying? Hole oh yeah the important this. thing is that i had a spoon in my hat look they've got to eat rat soup somehow okay yeah we'll get to the rat soup in a second <laughs> so um at the very very beginning um is it actually which comes first because we've watched it a couple of times uh, recently and it's got a very hazy dreamlike quality to it which makes it hard to place exact events but does the song come first or does do the hunters come first i think the it's hunters. the hunters okay yeah. <clears throat> the hunters are in the forest looking for prey and they find that there is there are no animals available and one of them theorizes that it's because the forest is under the protection of a unicorn so he calls out to the unicorn you must be the last unicorn since there we've not seen any others like you for a long long age which throws her into an existential quandary for pretty much the rest of the story because she's like i can't be the only one really and that causes her to decide to venture out into the world but the song much like the flight of dragons song at the beginning uh sung by sung by don mclean uh has this captivating melancholy to it which informs on the tone of the whole story now it's uh, there's a lot more fun obviously coming up but this kind of gets to that core of this is what you can expect to feel in this story. And I'll play it for you folks now. When the first breath of 
A, a very specific picture like it, it talks about the the last the last of everything and you, you you get the idea that the world is about to end but then there's this triumphant note where the unicorn herself is saying I'm alive like I'm I'm still here and you know hear me laughing it's is this very bright spark of beauty and hope even though everything else seems to be crumbling and dying and it, 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 it exemplifies what the unicorn herself symbolizes it's like there's, there's still beauty and magic in the world even though you've got this this ugly face of Haggard and, and Haggard's castle and his kingdom and everything is bleak and broken there's still a spark somewhere you just have to look for it it's almost like a live-action version of the opening of The NeverEnding Story, where you have this very impressionistic view of this destructive force, this sense of ending things, and you have this song that's you know, somewhat melancholy, but also, uh, you know, like, like Theo said, it's also somewhat defiant, um, and saying that there's, you know, there's still something else out there that I'm at least still here. Uh, it's like late Gen X um, young millennials the song of like well the, the world kind of sucks but we're still here and maybe we can make it not suck for a little bit <laughs> mm. I think the the song is one of the first examples for me of one of the key differences between this and Flight of Dragons because they're both about magic passing out of the world but whereas Flight of Dragons seems to be more from the perspective of the people who use magic and sort of consider that they have magic under their control, The Last Unicorn is about the magical creatures and the creatures who have magic used on them. So the, the world that's kind of passing out of existence is something that Amalthea is 
told of by others. She, who she is and what <clears throat> she is is identified to her by other people. She's very much a subject, and the fact that it's about her getting her say back in her life is probably the strongest thing about it for me. And this this song, the fact that they keep replaying it, underlines that. Hmm. She begins very uh, naive and she's led a sheltered existence in this lilac forest. And by the end of the film, she has loved and lost and experienced part of life and lived with humans that she previously had disdain for. So the film is effectively the building of her as a character and the making of her as a, a, a person, albeit a unicorn. She has to transition from unicorn to human and then back again mm-hmm. in order to, to do that. Um, there are... In every one of our uh, episodes, we give readings on films and, like, you know, this is what we think about the film. There's never one absolutely concrete one, and that's the way that it should be. Because if there was one, then media stories become dead, inert, because you've read them, decoded them like a puzzle, and then it's like, well, I guess that's all that we could possibly mine from this. The most rich works obviously keep giving more and new readings every uh, new generation. You folks, what are your readings on what the unicorn and I suppose magic represents in this world? Well, so much of what the the film does that differentiates it from Flight of Dragons is that with this the the magic passing out of uh, out of man's world is framed very deliberately as it passing out of man's dominion in that King Haggard has basically uh like he has claimed ownership of these things. And so much of this is about humanity and specifically men trying to control and hold on to and claim ownership of magic, very often deliberately personified by female characters or by literally women's bodies. Hmm. And the, the lesson that is most learned is that, no, these these things have to be free. They have to have a will of their own. You have to allow them to grow and to shape themselves and to switch back and forth however they need to in order to survive. Um, you know, Schmendrick's big win button is magic do as you will instead of trying to, you know, control things which spiral rapidly out of his control. And King Haggard tries to control the unicorns and it literally leads to everything he's built crumbling to ruin. The the unicorn represents like possibilities, not necessarily realistic possibilities, but an ability to see beyond what is actually is just there. Like the 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 random person that the unicorn runs into on the road and tries to to catch her and sell her at the fair as a horse. Most people would look at a horse and just see, oh yeah, that's a horse. But as someone who uses their imagination and can do what if exercises in their head, they they look at a horse and they see, hmm, I wonder what that would be if it had a horn, or a pair of wings, or fish scales, or you know, just just add things to what is possible to get something that's slightly impossible. And you, you, that's how we take step, steps forward uh, in progress, is you, take, you think of something that's absolutely impossible. Then you take a few steps back, 
and then you strive toward that. That's how sci-fi and fantasy have influenced uh, progress in in real world science, mm-hmm. and how we take steps toward you know better better storytelling, better technology. I may be reaching a little bit, but that's what these fantastic creatures represent for me. No, that that sounds really spot on, I think. the That sense of, okay, what in this impossible thing, what elements are there that we have already? Okay, so you've already taken that first step into it's not completely impossible because there are elements that we recognise. So how can we increase those? How can we advance to match what we already have to this impossible thing that we've been dreaming of. I mean, I think for, for me, the, the unicorn represents a state of, and, and particularly if I kind of put this into the frame of a child observing, is a state of being that's one of isolation and loneliness, not necessarily a, a dreadful isolation and loneliness or something that you're, you're looking to overcome because Amalthea is quite happy with the state that she is in at the beginning of the film. She's not necessarily looking to change it. But the fact that she then starts asking questions that lead her to deduce that, well, if she exists then there must be other creatures like her that also exist. She came from somewhere. Therefore, there must be other unicorns somewhere. And that's what kind of moves her to get out of the forest and, and set out on her quest. And her her hero's journey, if you like, being initiated by herself because... Not that she is lonely, but that she is trying to refute that she is the only one of her kind. And when you're a kid who lives in an environment where you feel like you're the only one of your kind, you're the only one who's into X, Y, Z, you're the only one who sees the world in this particular way, you know, you're the only one who has an attraction to others that is shaped in this way, or a perception of your body that is that expresses itself like this that feeling of it's not that being lonely is wrong but there must be other people like me out there i'm gonna go find some there's a wonderful parallel there with um uh, fans of the last unicorn were fairly widespread but singular they uh only knew the the friends of theirs that they watched the film with when they were younger and it's harder to uh, introduce people especially as animation moves on to this film around about 2013 2015 there was a tour of a new 2k restoration of the film where peter s beagle himself uh, went around the country uh, attending effectively like a mini convention and uh, doing signings of the book and dvd and blu-ray for uh, fans the sad thing about this was that the actual tour became too much for him he's an old man he turns 80 this year and this was just a few years ago i think he was about 75 when he had to pull out and uh, he ended up having to sign thousands of uh, autographed cards just to give to the people who had booked tickets for the tour dates that couldn't be met there were also various legal troubles as it was feared he was being exploited for this tour The upside to this bold endeavour, cut short though it was, is that 
fans of The Last Unicorn were able to kind of congregate, come together and, and find out quite how many people like them were out there that were prepared to sell out these theatres to, uh, to, to watch this film that they love so much. And it's, it's heartening. Like that's, when I was younger, that's what I imagined the internet was for, that it would bring together all these lonely people who felt that they were the only people into this one thing. And it did. It's also brought together a lot of bitter, confused, angry people who seem fixated on control. And I suppose it's, it's the, uh, the double-edged sword, the, the bittersweet, the, the upside and the downside of, of uh, the age of communication. Or, if you will, the information age. Or, the extension of that, the misinformation age. That really does kind of get exemplified by this, the, the way this is trickled onto home video formats, because, um, I mean, Be- Beagle is super committed to, to trying to, to engage with fans. The reason that I still own that kind of cruddy edited version of The Last Unicorn is because they did this big push for a DVD release, and he signed a bunch of of DVDs and DVD covers. And so like I bought a bunch of these for like my friends who are super into the movie and he was actually like personalizing them to people, not just signing an autograph, but he would say to so-and-so from Pete. And of course he had to do that for thousands and thousands Jesus. of DVDs. Um, but that's, that's why I own this on, on Blu-ray and DVD as well. Cause there's no way in hell I'm getting rid of that case. Of that's, not. that's got, that's got like him writing to my wife on it. So I'm not going to get rid of that. I mean, you probably wouldn't necessarily have something like Shout Factory putting out a big 2K restoration onto Blu-ray without uh, something like an internet fan community keeping interest in this movie alive. So, yeah, I I think that's a very well-taken point of, you know, the the shitty part of fandom is super easy to to pay attention to. But, you know, every now and then they're a bit less less haggardy. This is ours, and we will control it. Yeah, Haggard's kind of a toxic fan of unicorns. A little bit, yeah. He is! They make me happy. They're all mine. So now I must keep them. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe we'll get uh, one. I mean, I'll, I'll just get the German version. That's fine. They're, they are huge into the last unicorn in Germany. According to uh, uh, the somewhat spurious... Connor Cochran, the last unicorn outsold Star Wars in certain theatres in Germany. Huh. So, uh, wow. Yeah. Uh, that would be why uh, it's come out in, uh, on DV- in various editions only in Germany. They care about it there, it would seem. I do wonder why. Is, is an Einhorn something more significant to Teutonic people? I don't know. Not that I'm aware of. Do we have any German-based fans who could... If you're tell us. German-based or you know someone who's German-based who could t- uh, tell us about this, do let us know via Twitter, at School of Movies. Or come over to the Discord, where we're chatting about everything at the moment. Mm-hmm. It's important to note that we are listening to the soundtrack to Das Letze Einhorn, only released in Germany. And this one was a mare to track down, so thank you very much to Greg Downing. Horizon Rising up to me the purple dawn dust demon screaming bring an eagle to lead me on 
For in my heart I carry such a heavy load Here I am on man's road Walking man's road Walking man's road I'm hungry, weary, but I cannot lay me down. The rain comes, dreary, but there's no shelter I have found. It will be a long time till I find I above here I am on man's road walking man's road uh let's move on to minute 2 of the movie uh- <laughs> No, okay, we'll, we'll hop, skip, and jump through a lot of this because we've we've kind of covered uh, quite a lot of the meat already. Uh, she meets a singing butterfly who reminds me of the singing bush from Three Amigos. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I have something very specific to say about the butterfly, though, okay. because the, the the way this scene plays out, what's the first thing that struck me was this guy is useless because he comes and she's trying to ask him, "Who am I?" And he can't really tell her anything. He's giving He sings her, in riddles, of He does, yeah. And, and he starts singing things at her, like, you are my sunshine, and um, and he says, your name is a golden bell. And it's, it's just sort of this general, I can't tell you anything concrete. I can't give you a straight answer, which is something that obviously manifests in another character later on. Mm-hmm. But the as, as this goes on, he does drop some really crucial information into this outpouring of song and poetry, a lot of which is sort of very basic nursery rhyme kiddie stuff. And it occurred to me that this ties in with the uh, the idea of her setting herself up on her own quest. We've, we've talked many, many times before about uh, fairy tales and mythology having coded messages in order to live life and do the things that you need to do often extremely coded often they need an awful lot of interpretation to make any sense especially when you apply them to modern life but these children's rhymes that he's throwing at her do give her the seed of enough information to be able to at least set off, maybe not get her very far, but at least get her moving and get her out of the forest. So if you if you kind of take that as a metaphor for story generally, even the most basic versions of story, even the most simple lyrics of a rhyme or a, a song that appears to be very superficial contains elements that you can take and transform and put together in a message that is useful to you. Can inspire a quest. Indeed. And he even says, he gives her the 
decoder ring, if you like, because he even says the line, listen, but not to me. Listen through me. Listen to what's coming through <laughs> what I'm saying rather than the actual words that are coming out of my mouth. Got it. I mean, he's basically speaking in, in the, the bardic you know, version of pop culture references because he's throwing in versions of songs and rhymes and things that people will... Yeah, the, the Muffin Man. He's almost like a a proto version of like Ready Player One. Just like, <laughs> hey, find the find the Easter eggs in these little things, and <laughs> and like, oh, okay, fine. Red Bull Quest. All right. Yeah, but that does right. a great Even... disservice to this butterfly. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, well, he's... he's just this side of obnoxious. Mm. He it, the butterfly is like what it's like to live in a brain that has ADHD. Because yes. there, there'll be times when my brain is just shouting references at me, and I'm going like, "Oh my god!" I'm I'm sitting there like Captain America, going, uh, "I understood that reference. Um, I don't know what to do with it, but there it is." But thank you for that. I call it jukebox brain because, mm. yeah. like the one in Shaun of the Dead, it's on random. Uh-huh. It affects you worst. Well, it affects me worst when I'm trying to sleep because then I don't have anything to focus on. That's mm. why when I read, I can just focus on the words, and that calms me and sends me to sleep before I can actually get into the meat of a book. I am cursed as a writer to be unable to actually focus on reading. The bardic element. Once upon a time, sometimes a bard was as close as rural communities could get to a priest, to somebody who could interpret the gods for them. And even his throw-off references, you know, the, one of the last things he says is the king is in the counting house, counting out, counting out. I mean, that's haggard. Like, it, he's done actually telling her things. He's going back to his rhymes. But even then, before she's even heard of King Haggard from uh, from Mommy Fortuna, that's the first time we hear that sort of um, possessive, monarchical uh, attitude connected to why the unicorns are gone. As well as the singing bush from the Three Amigos, this guy reminds me of Rekgar from the Junkions in Transformers the Movie. Only rather than rely on song lyrics, Rekgar is drawing from a pool of asinine commercials. And the answer is... Unicron! Then we've got to destroy Unicron! Whereas the butterfly sounds like... Unicorn. Old French, unicorn. Latin, unicornis. Literally one horned. Unus, one, and cornu, a horn. A fabulous animal resembling a horse with one horn. Visible only to those who search and trust, and generally mistaken for a white mare. Unicorn. You do know me! Please, all I want to know is if you've seen other unicorns like me somewhere in the world. See you later, alligator. Uh, let's move on to the uh, uh, carnival, because there's, there's really just four sections of this film. It goes forest, carnival, forest, fortress. And we've got to move out of the forest, much like Amalthea herself, who is voiced by Mia Farrow. And uh, she, she does a, a pretty good job uh, of, of playing the unicorn. She has a slight haughtiness to her, uh, but at the same time there's uh, a, a childlikeness to her and an innocence. And uh, when she is 
required to freak out. She's very good at that as well. The butterfly tells her that uh, there were other unicorns, but they all got herded into the sea by a giant red bull. And the red bull stuck with a lot of people, apparently. The um, creator of Red Hulk, whom I assume is Jeff Loeb, uh, mentioned that uh, the, the Red Bull was uh, an inspiration for, for him as this villainous uh, character, just this expression of raw primal anger, but in a, uh, a very negative way rather than Hulk's use of anger, which can be chaotic, but it can also be used for good and to aim. Mm. Red Hulk very rarely uh, is used for anything positive. Yeah, and if you take Amalthea as the representation of the spiritual element of power and of this world the red bull is kind of the flip side of that fire is often used to represent spirit because it's such an ethereal Mm -hmm. material if you like the purity of her white is contrasted by the very vivid red of the bull he's huge and very bulky she is very small and delicate and they contrast each other very visually as well as thematic terms and that's one of the reasons why them facing off against each other at the end is so powerful. Mummy Fortuna's Midnight Carnival is uh, effectively a Victorian freak show where this old witch has taken a bunch of old zoo animals and enchanted them to look like, uh, in the case of a mopey zoo lion, a manticore in the case of a uh, ape with a twisted leg, a satyr. Uh, and in the case of the last unicorn, she sticks an extra horn on her head so that people can see it because the existing horn will be impossible to see for regular people, though Mommy can and her, I suppose, indentured magician, Schmendrick can also see this horn so he can see Amalthea for who she actually is. Mm. And these two... Schmendrick is, as Amalthea is the spiritual element, Schmendrick is the intellectual element. He deals in words and illusions, and he tries to use them for good, and you pointed out that Mommy Fortuna is the the kind of evil flip of that, in that she uses words and illusion to convince people of things which don't help them. Mm. But there's an element of... She tells herself that people want to be fooled. And for me, especially with her being voiced by Angela Angela Lansbury, Lansbury. who is, you know, classic witch in uh, in children's stories. And Bedknobs and Broomsticks was one of my childhood formative films. That That was your Mary Poppins. That was my Mary Poppins, yeah. The line between Mommy Fortuna and a character like, say, Granny Weatherwax... I think is quite clear. Granny Weatherwax is also not above using a little bit of headology around the actual magic that she does in order to get people to take the advice that she gives them. She dresses it up so that it will it will work and it will be more effective. But she's using it for the sake of improving things. Mommy Fortuna is using it for putting money in her own pocket and not much more than yeah, that. Just greed. Mm. She has a very narrow view on the world for a magic user. Absolutely. And in a way, that makes it even worse that occasionally she does manage to trap actual magic creatures. Yeah. 
because it's not as if she doesn't know what they are and she's just keeping them because they are useful to her. She knows perfectly well she has a real harpy. She knows perfectly well she has a real unicorn. She has no right to keep those creatures trapped, mm. yet she does. She's basically seeking immortality, um, and she chooses to pursue that by, I trapped you immortal creatures, ha ha ha, you are always going to remember that me, this lowly hedge witch, kept you prisoner. And she chooses to pursue that rather than using the same gifts that she has to, like, go, for example, the William Shakespeare route, because she could put something out into the world that's, like, got actual meaning um, because she's got still the same kind of showmanship and illusions, and that that could all be used for a very different sort of purpose to attain a similar sort of immortality, but she has she's going by it through a very selfish sort of route, um, which, again, kind of ties into that whole, like, you know how humanity is trying to control and own magic. It's it's very compelling and very tragic and melancholy because she's like, yeah, I'm going to die. That's fine. It's it's a very odd character, especially for Mrs. Potts to be playing. Mm. This hapless hero wizard's name is, of course, a play on Mandrake the magician, and Schmendrick is played by Alan Arkin, who reminded me a little of Rincewind from Discworld. Absolutely, yeah. Kind of a, a wizard who's not fantastic at doing what he does. Mm, yeah. A little bit of a putz. Mm. Or, or I think he's probably more Simon from Equal Rights, but there's not a million miles between him and Rincewind. Okay. And uh, he excels at uh, just showing people illusions. Does he say that uh, he he can't cast real magic because he's immortal? He has to become mortal to, to be able to use magic? No, in the in the film, it's never really explained right, yeah, why sorry. exactly he can't do it. Um, in the in the context of the book, he's cursed to be immortal mm. until he figures out how he's a to Highlander? use magic. He's basically a Highlander. Oh yeah, my God, Look at the <laughs> Highlander here. <laughs> so, um, okay, so immortality it gets mentioned repeatedly throughout the story. So, so what is the significance? Because obviously, Amalthea is immortal. Uh, Nanny, Mommy Fortuna wants to be immortal in terms of spoken of long after her death. Specifically feared that she yeah. will be remembered because she kept a harpy captive. Schmendrick is cursed to be immortal. And are there any other uh, instances? The, the other significant reference to immortality that springs to mind is the tree. When he is being embraced by the tree that he's accidentally created... She tells With grammatically him, correct bosom. Exactly. Grammatically correct, grammatically they correct are. Grammatically correct bosoms, yes. Barky um, bosoms. But she tells him that uh, the, the love of a tree is immortality because the tree will last forever and it will remember you and you will be... I mean, she doesn't say this in these exact words, but the implication is you will be written in the rings of that tree and therefore you will live forever. Nice. And then when Amalthea gets uh, accidentally turned into a uh, human later on by Schmendrick himself, uh, she goes from being immortal to being mortal, and she screams, I can feel my body dying around me, mm. which paints mortality in a very scary way. Absolutely. Especially well, for the... little kids. They're like, oh, my God. Oh, that's the thing, by the way, idiotic one-star reviewer, that you need to hone in on. My child had an existential crisis, <laughs> not the harpy had big wrinkly tits. <laughs> but the... the... <laughs> The essence of the control that humans try to exhort over magic is 
that they are afraid of their mortality. It's not specifically that they are afraid of dying, but they it, there's there's almost something like the I don't know. It's difficult to put into words because it expresses itself differently for everybody. But but humans seem to be afraid that they will be forgotten. Yeah. And hence why Mommy Fortuna's happy with the fact that this creature will remember forever that she hurt it. And that's her immortality. And the tree is saying that I will remember forever that I loved you. And that's a form of immortality. That to, to be able to have some control over and connection with these creatures that will live forever, which if you go into sort of the umbrella terms of the, the story, these creatures will live forever in myth. So as humans, if we connect ourselves with these magical creatures, we will exist in those myths too. But if you look at Haggard and the reason why he's trying to control all of these magical creatures, he is painted as being extremely old. He's not immortal. He's going to die at some point. But he's lived for a very, very long time. But the essence of his character is he's not happy. And nothing can make him happy. And he's trying to control this this, uh, magical world because on some level he... He almost seems to think that that control will make him happy, Hmm. but it obviously doesn't. I think it's just that seeing the purity of the unicorns themselves... Reminds him how unhappy he is. No, unicorns, he says, makes him happy. You guys, um, what's Haggard's deal? If anyone who's read the book might be able to tell us a bit more. He he mentions that the first time he saw a unicorn, he felt just this ecstasy this this joy of seeing something so beautiful and pure and he he mistakenly attaches that feeling to well if seeing a unicorn made me this happy then owning all the unicorns must make me happy forever and he doesn't realize that owning something doesn't necessarily mean it's going to give you anything alternate ending for this film they convince him to let them go and he is incredibly happy to let and them the go and the sense of letting them go makes him happy not necessarily better ending but better ending for Haggard who by the way Peter um, Beagle felt sorry for he mm. doesn't like calling him just a villain he is kind of a pathetic wretched old man There's some- I, uh, he's, he's incredibly sad because he, his his mistaken attachment to from from joy to possession is what it it, it it brings everything down around him. It, it ruins his kingdom. Like, his own court, he says, he only has, like, four-minute arms, and we don't even see them. Hmm. He, he's, his, his court and his castle are so empty and, and dusty and lifeless. And it's all because he, he's obsessed with possessing something that he thinks will make him happy. And when he's not happy at having these things, it it's very confusing for him. He doesn't understand, well, I, I have all the unicorns. I can see them every day, whenever I want. Why am I not happy? He just doesn't understand how that first experience made him happy and why. I made a note while I was watching Haggard work uh, that uh, he reminded me of uh, many Game of Thrones characters. And then on the commentary, somebody brought up the fact he could be in Game of Thrones. And it's correct. 
insofar as Game of Thrones is mostly about this kind of obsessive person, young or old, being given their measure of, uh, of if not unlimited power, then usually obscene power, and the damage that they cause. Every single one of these old bastards causes the kind of like in, interpersonal damage, as in they hurt and kill people that we care about, and then grand-scale damage, as in they hurt and destroy and capture and uh, fixate on and warp large aspects of Westeros and Essos. Folks who are just coming to the show won't quite know my thoughts on uh, Game of Thrones yet, but I don't like it. Uh, suffice to say, I, I far prefer small potted versions of this story where there's just one of these old guys and it's kind of a cautionary tale against obsession. Denethor, for example, in uh, uh, Lord of the Rings, that is uh, an old guy who managed to do some real damage himself but was cut off before he could really mess things up. Abandon your post! Prepare for battle! A lot of Tolkien fans hate this bit in Return of the King, but it's actually what you're supposed to do with people like this. Bonk them on the head and remove them from their position before they kill everyone. There is only one thing that has ever made me happy. What is that? Do not mock me. I know very well what you have come for. And you know very well that I have them. Try to take them if you can, but do not mock me. My lord, in all your castle, in all your realm, there is nothing of yours that I desire. Good day, your majesty. I know you! Almost knew you as soon as I saw you on the road coming to my door. Since then, there is no movement of yours that has not betrayed you. A pace, a glance, a turn of the head, the flash of your throat as you breathe. Even your way of standing perfectly still, they were all my spies. Come here. There. There they are. There they are. They are mine. They belong to me. The Red Bull gathered them for me, one by one, and I bade him drive each one into the sea. Now they live there, and every tide carries them within an easy step of the land, but they dare not come out of the water. They are afraid of the Red Bull. You can trace a through line here of tragic obsession to pretty much every aspect of human misery. Either it's caused by this obsession, or there's a measure of obsession that prevents its successful resolution. So, for example, world hunger, which could be fixed tomorrow by the wealthy, who remain that wealthy because they don't fix world hunger, because they jealously guard their dragon horde. Everything from jackbooted ice agents to continuous attempts to illegalize abortion in the 21st century, to blocking gay marriage and gay rights, to excluding trans people wherever possible, to demonizing and focusing only on the negatives of non-white cultures, 
to excusing and distracting from genuine injustices within white cultures, all the way down to the appropriate, required size of Tifa Lockhart's titties, all comes down to an obsession with control. That's why we need stories like these, to remind us that the system isn't fair, and if we don't keep pushing back, it will get worse. The next character uh, to talk about, I suppose, would be Molly Grew, the dramatic Molly Grew, played by Tammy Grimes. Uh, This is just before they get to um, the Fortress of Haggard, and just after they leave the carnival, they meet this bunch of woodland uh, brigands led by a captain named Cully. Cully. Cully, yeah. Uh, And it's actually his common-law wife. Did they actually mention that in the film? There, there's a brief shot of a tree with a heart carved into it that says CC and MG. That's not the same thing at all. Yeah. <laughs> Back in the day, the, all you had to do was inscribe the, your initials on a tree and that was it. You the were married. The tree said so. <laughs> it's, the, it's the only hint you get. Yeah. In the movie, at least. It, the book makes it a little clearer that that's, they're, they're together, but, you know. Well, in, uh, it, it's, it's only really worth noting because she ends up definitely not with uh, him at the end and in fact it, it seems like she and um, Schmendrick have kind of a, am I misinterpreting they've got a romantic no, they, thing going? No, they do kind of suggest that they're going to, at, at the very least they're going to travel together for a while and see what happens. Okay. From the sounds of it, when she was younger, wanted to um, uh, fall in with a Robin Hood troupe, and then the reality of that set in and she grew older and worked hard until her hands bled and at the staggering ancient age of 38 years old um (laughs) uh finally meets this unicorn and then there's this wonderful scene uh which i I will play for you now folks Because for legal reasons, no one's allowed to put the entirety of this wonderful scene on YouTube, I'll read you the rest. Where were you 20 years ago? 10 years ago? Where were you when I was new? When I was one of those innocent young maidens you always come to? How dare you come to me now, when I am this? Then Schmendrick says, can you really see her? Do you know what she is? And Molly replies, if you've been waiting to see a unicorn as long as I have. Then Schmendrick says, she's the last unicorn in the world. And Molly replies, it would be the last unicorn that came to Molly Grew. It's all right. I forgive you. She's very intense in everything she says. And she feels things, you know, joy and anger and fear... Uh, very acutely. Peter Beagle said that uh, she brought out new elements of uh, Molly that he hadn't written originally, Mm. uh, which is the best thing you can really do with a character. Yeah. She's very vivacious. Uh, She's she's 
for all that she talks about feeling old and and being and referring to herself as more of you know someone who's now I'm this I'm this used up I'm not new anymore she's still got like more fire and passion than basically anyone else in the film and mm-hmm. she and I also love her attitude like the first thing she says about Schmendrick is I don't like the look of him kill him kill him <laughs> slot him not just and not just gut him it's like wow okay <laughs> you're extra and i am here for it <laughs> yeah. i i would say molly is probably the character that i connect with the most hmm. and for me she represented the physical element she's if you listen to the the things that she refers to in her conversations and the the factors of the story that she is connected to she's to do with food and aging she gets involved when they're having the conversation about directions and she's the person who is most concerned about Amalthea being turned into a woman and the the negative connotations of that the idea that being that shape will start to affect Amalthea's mind and it will no longer be a unicorn's mind it's because she's been she's been where Amalthea is she knows what it's like to go from feeling like you're new and young and like you're going to live forever like everyone does when they're when they're a teenager to being acutely aware of just how much of a pulp the world will make of you, especially if you're a woman. And so she's she's kind of terrified of what the world is going to do to this innocent young creature. And her hair's all straggly and affected by the elements of the time. Also, she has bare feet, which means her feet, are, her skin is always in she's contact with the earth. constantly in contact with the earth. Which absolutely. means she constantly feels pain, but she also constantly feels sensation. Yeah, that's true. And I, I really like the relationship between her and Amalthea. I, one of my few criticisms of Flight of Dragons is that it is a little bit shoddy on female characters and in particular female characters interacting with each There's other. There's two female characters, There's, they don't ever meet. They, they no. And they, they barely do anything. And they're both fairly stereotypical. Danielle being a slightly more progressive stereotype than Melisande. But here you've got two women who are both very different but very multi-layered. They don't act in entirely ways that are that you could kind of put a pin in and say, oh yeah, that's stereotypically female. And specifically they interact with each other and help each other in ways that are sort of specific to them. And their relationship is a very real one and it feels very supportive and very sisterly. In fact, that that element of sisterhood is referred to a couple of times by the harpy. When they release the harpy at the carnival or when the harpy is trying to get them to release her, mm. she says to Amalthea, we are sisters, you and I. Mm. So she, so this, this sort of sense of all of these these women, including Mommy Fortuna, including the tree, they all have roots, excuse the pun, hmm. in this sort of magical world. Even if all Molly is doing is walking on it, she is still very rooted in that world and she wants to embrace the magic of it. That's why she is so drawn to Schmendrick's illusion of the Robin Hood and Maid Marian, even if it's just a story. And again, that's another echo of the importance of story and storytelling and how inspirational that can be, even if it's not real. 
And I think you've hit on one of the the main arguments that this film makes in regards specifically to immortality. Um, it's almost a tossed off reference to uh, Lear saying that the happy ending can't come in the middle of a story and Schmendrick and Molly following on with, you know, well, what if there is no happy ending? There are no happy endings because nothing ends. And that's that Schmendrick kind of putting a bow on on exactly how this sort of thing works is that just being a part of things means that. You know, even if you're, you know, if your name is forgotten, then a piece of you is still immortalized just in the fact that you've lived in and shaped the world, that you saw unicorns, that you've, you know, that you've walked the same earth that maybe Robin Hood had, you know, that you've that you've carved your names into trees and things like that. Um, and it, it really does. I mean, kids aren't really going to get that um, because, you know, hey, it's it's a kind of cool story about how the unicorn saves the other unicorns. But once you're past a certain threshold, that melancholy and that sort of like, well, nothing really ends. And that's both beautiful and heartbreaking is one of the things that I love most about this story. I just had this weird thought that it's an element of quantum theory. Go for it. <laughs> uh, the, the act of obs- observation has an effect on things like just being there and witnessing what happens you've changed it somehow in in a very tiny way maybe but you have had an effect i mean even if you're not you know quote unquote part of the story it has affected you and you have affected it in some way like schrodinger's story once once you have observed it you know it has it has become a thing as opposed to being stuck between two different possibilities and you'll never know what that story would have been if you hadn't observed it. Exactly. Schrodinger's unicorn. There's a weird throwaway line when they're about to have uh, dinner with the Robin Hood types uh, where they're, they're complaining about having nothing but rat soup to eat. And then as they sit down, someone says to Schmendrick, have a taco. It's... <laughs> Yep, that's what he says. Yeah, that's a gag that probably belongs more in Shrek 2 than The Last Unicorn. True, but I will say this. The animators included two large plates of tacos... Soft-shell tacos. ...on the floor... To make sure. ...around the campfire. The confused Japanese animators going, Really, tacos? And why? Of course, it was (laughs) pre-Google. They'd have known tacos, wouldn't they? Okay. Get out your encyclopedia of American and Mexican things Mm. in this case. Well, they did say they kept contacting them to say, You said draw this. What is that? Yeah. That may have been one of the things. But it did occur to me at that point that these are rat tacos. They're not carrying fresh beef around Mm. or anything. If you're eating rat soup, it's going to be rat tacos followed by rat skewers. Anyway, so uh, rather than stabbing him, they uh, take Schmendrick and tie him to a tree. Does he turn the tree into a living tree with breasts? Yep. I think it's one of his magic do as you will moments. Right. He's, he, he's like, I can't, I can't get out of this, so screw it. Whatever's going to happen, poof. So he's kind of got and chaos magic then. Yeah. Well, he's noticed that he tends to get the best results when he stops trying to control it so yeah. hard. Yeah. And actually, yeah, if you if you look through the uh, film, whenever he uses this chaos magic, things tend to work out right in the end. Whereas with Haggard, he uses very forceful magic. 
And, uh, oh, yep, sorry, Sharon's pointing to Presto uh, on our notes for uh, Dungeons and Dragons, in case we ever do a show on that. And, uh, yeah, yeah, Presto, similarly, uh, whenever he uh, would, would pull something out of his hat, it would turn out to be somewhat useful. It would useful. look useless initially, yeah. but it would usually turn out to be exactly the thing he needed. Hmm. Or it would just be a gag. Yeah. Yeah. But some, like, his hat was more useful and saved their lives than a lot of the other uh, skills. Mm. He's also potentially the most powerful of all of them. So anyway, um, he gets tied to a tree, which grows into a big, barky woman, and then uh, gets set free by Amalthea, the unicorn. Then they form a, 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 brief, a brief alliance. Then they meet Molly. seems like everyone else has wandered off now, and Molly's just broken away from the group. And that's when you get that, damn you, where have you been scene. Then regarding the Red Bull, there's a line that struck me that I just wrote down. You have all the power you need if you dare to look for it. That, who says that to whom? Um, that's, that's Molly Grew to Schmendrick. Yeah. Um, I believe when they're talking about how to, how to save her. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure it's, it's Molly talking to, yeah, to Schmendrick because, about how yeah, to save him up. This is uh, Schmendrick immediately then turns her, well, lets his chaos magic do its work, and that turns Amalthea into a, a woman. You have all the power you need if you dare look for it. That's the words of the man who said to Holly, you are a writer. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Let's move on to uh, Hagsgate Castle. Uh, there's actually a bit in the book, uh, as far as uh, from what I can tell from the notes, where they go through uh, a township and everyone's suffering and, and business is not doing fantastically. But there's a, a, a prophecy that when the castle falls, they'll do really, really well. But it can only fall when it is cast down by one of the sons of the town. Yep. Haggard adopted a baby boy he found in the marketplace who, as it turns out, was placed there by the person telling them this prophecy on purpose to someday bring this prophecy to fruition. And that baby grew up into a character called Lear, played by Jeff Bridges, who is far more... Uh, what would be the word? What's the audio version of legible? Easy to make out what he's saying. Then, then he is now a cursor like this all the time. Um, <laughs> but back then, he was sort of young and relatively unknown. I think he had just been in uh, the 1970s King Kong film. Uh, but he, uh, apparently, Bow Bridges was more well known at the time. So you're saying that words aren't getting in his way quite so much yeah. during this period of his. <laughs> he was still alive, but just was. Said it was them two Wharton boys done it and rode up drunk. Objection. Hearsay. All them two Wharton boys, that'd be Otis and CC, throw down on him. Well, me and Marshall Potter went out to the smokehouse, and that rock had been moved, and the jar with the money in it was gone. Objection. Speculative. But I love Jeff Bridges, and I love the way he, he talks, so I wouldn't change him for the world. Um, but uh, it's, 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 it's interesting. Uh, well, it's fun hearing a young, fresh version of him here. I don't know any more about her than I did the first day she came here. Your Highness. Except that I wish to serve her, as you do, to help her find whatever she has come here to find. I wish to be whatever she has most need of. Will you tell her so? His dad 
Haggard himself, who we've talked about multiple times, is played by Christopher Lee, who lends it this gravitas and classiness and sense of operatic drama, uh, which it it might have been less so with a a, a smaller voice to it. And uh, so, yeah, that, this is some excellent casting in the years before having a big celebrity cast became a big deal. Lee was so dedicated to his character that he also performed all the German audio, which actually presented some problems. And I have befohlen, jedes einzelne ins Meer to... Oh, you see, it's much too slow. This is the problem. Do you see the difference in the number of words? It's half the number of words. So, uh... I just have to do it very quickly, which may lose a little bit of the sense. Let us try one I'll try it. One thing I loved about Christopher Lee and continue to love, because as you find out more and more about people who lived before you in your life, it's present tense is that no role was beneath him. And while that would just seem like Nicolas Cage levels of just grabbing any old thing, what this meant for Lee was that he would dedicate himself with an equal measure of seriousness to every cartoon, every Dracula, every wizard, every Lord Summerisle, every gentleman, in a way that suggests he believed all material deserves respect. I don't think I can muster that in myself but I admire it in him. If the public enjoys my work and goes to the theatres to see me and to watch me and to listen to me, that is the greatest reward I can have because that for me is a kind of victory, you know, ein Sieg, in a way, because that is why I do it. I do it because I love doing it, because it is my life's work, but it's much more than work. It is dedication, it is devotion, it is love. And it is being different people, being different characters, working all over the world, working with very clever people, very talented, intelligent, charming, loyal people. And so I love my job and I'm proud of my job and I'm proud of the people I work with. But it is not an easy life. It is a very tough life today because the unemployment is very high in America and in Europe. There are not so many films being made. So it is an uncertain life. There is no security. But once you decide to do it, you never want to do anything else. And I have been an actor and a singer for 36 years. 36 years. Yeah, Christopher Lee is physically incapable of not absolutely bringing it. And even if it's just his voice, he definitely brings it as Hagrid. Hagrid. It's not Hagrid. Don't go asking questions about them unicorns, Harry. Now now your impression has me wanting to hear, like, you know, modern, like, True Grit Jeff Bridges sing the songs from this. And that's going to be stuck in my head. So that's great. Uh, I've got time to write a book about. Oh, God. Walking mad road. A bunch it's of really, scraps. Oh, God. The, the songs that America sings are really good. But for some reason, they make Jeff Bridges and Mia Farrow sing like an octave outside their natural speaking mm. range. And I'm just sitting there going, you should not have done that. That was a mistake. Yeah. Once I can't remember. 
The duet with Leah, though, that is not Mia Farrow. They had a, a an actual singer come in to do all of the songs. Her name was Katie Irving, no relation to Amy. But Mia Farrow had recorded some of them as as sort of as they were recording the dialogue, Temp just songs. to ha- yeah, just to have a placeholder. The first version of Now That I'm a Woman is Mia Farrow. It was left in by mistake. Oh, yeah, because the version on the soundtrack is not. Yeah. Once when I was searching somewhere out of reach, far away, in a place I could not find or hard obey. That's why when she does the duet with Leah, it sounds as though her voice has suddenly gone up an octave. It's because it's a woman who's capable of singing a lot higher than Mia Farrow could. Yes. Whoops. Finish, I suppose I never I, I was seriously reminded of the interior of Castle Plunder from uh, Thundercats inside uh, Haggard's Keep. Uh, it's It's got that kind of... They, they do a lot with blacks to make it seem like, you know, great shadowy expanse. And effectively all you're seeing is just a, a wash of, of uh, the absence of colour. But, uh, yeah, no, this is it's beautiful. Another effect that they use um, is the shimmering on the water. So it's just that they'll paint some a lake... Uh, and then they'll just uh, put a couple of uh, you know uh, glimmering spots on that of light, and that effect used in Thundercats repeatedly. Whenever I see it in a film um, from this era, will resonate with me. It it really is just momentarily beautiful in the oddest ways because again, you can tell they didn't have much money. I I would really love to see this film. And, uh, I I know we're in such a remake culture right now, but. You know, if nothing else, then to like give give Peter Beagle another shot at collecting some royalties. I would love to see this script, not not necessarily anything changed, but I would love to see something like by, I don't know, Laika or the the people who did um, Song of the Sea and Secret of Kells. Yeah. And, you know, someone like that really take a stab at this and give it the, you know, give it the chance to have modern production value and and, an animation that was properly funded, because, again, Rankin Bass was kind of a dime store outfit. You know, they weren't they weren't used to having feature films and they certainly didn't have feature animation money. 
and no one was really doing much with giving a lot of feature animation a lot of money in the early 80s when Disney was still very much on its last toenails. So I, I would love to see someone like try to do this, but on the other hand, I'd be terrified of them just absolutely messing up everything that made it special. Yeah, I tell you how I could see this being done, actually. Cartoon Saloon could do this. It would be extremely niche which is not to say that the original isn't very niche anyway. Which is Cartoon Saloon. They which only is, just break even absolutely. if that. But can you imagine if they did this script, but the animation style was done like the Unicorn Tapestry? Mm. <sighs> oh. Putting that in my veins. <laughs> yeah. There's a pirate cat. Yeah, He's I was not just a about... pirate in the book. <laughs> Is he not a pirate? So they, they were like, let's just make him a pirate then. And uh, then the, uh, the the actor goes uh, way overboard with his uh, affectations. Also, keep an eye out at the very, very end when Molly gets on her horse. It seems like the animators included an Easter egg by including the cat just for one or two frames, hitching a ride on her horse only to get covered by her cloak. Oh, oh, purr, purr. Do that. Yes, that'd be nice. But I, I noticed that he changes his eye patch from one eye to the other, and I feel like Alex Hirsch is a fan of this because he makes Grunkle Stan do that in the intro to Gravity Falls. And then he employed the son of the guy who played Peter Dickinson in Flight of Dragons to play Dipper. It's all a big circle. Mm, yes. He's, he's working in animation today. Mm. That suggests to me that he is at least aware of Rankin Bass and the range of work. One would hope. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the pirate cat reminded me of Grebo from uh, Discworld again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I feel like, if nothing else, Terry Pratchett watched this and went, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> a cat I'd be surprised cat. if he didn't read it. I, I mean, fantasy, especially in the 60s to the 70s, I mean, fantasy authors read other fantasy authors. I would be very surprised if Pratchett, whose sensibilities and humor are at least not worlds apart from Beagles. Yeah. Like, I think he's kind of familiar with some of this. Yeah, so that would make sense if Schmendrick ended up a little bit in Rincewind and uh, uh, the pirate cat ended up a little bit in Grebo. After Haggard grants Molly, Schmendrick, and Amalthea a stay at his castle in exchange for work, his adopted son, Lear, so that's Jeff Bridges, falls in love with the human-formed Amalthea. And one of the most touching aspects of this story is that when he finds out she's a unicorn, that doesn't change his mind. This is the polar opposite of trans panic. It's a message of acceptance and being able to see through appearances to what really matters. Notably, the two of them are unified by separate shots in the film of their shadows, with Amalthea's showing her horn near the beginning, which the farmer can't see, and Lear's horse accentuated with the shade of his lance, suggesting a connection beyond the physical. The connection between the two of them here, and again in the this sort of... Amalthea being the spiritual, Molly being the physical, and Schmendrick being the intellectual. I was casting around for who best represented the emotional sphere, and it's Lear. He's relatively in touch with himself, albeit that he is occasionally naive about his own emotions. And he is the bright reflection of Haggard, who is 
the in dark, a state twisted of conflict obsession. with his own emotions. Yeah. yeah, the fact that both of them love the sea and water is is the element that's usually most connected with emotional states. There are links between emotional and spiritual ways of looking at the world that make him and Amalfia as a as a couple work but that he is willing to give that up by the end because it's more important to him that she is able to move forward whether that's with or without him that that kind of tone of sacrifice that comes from him is what for me makes him the kind of the most heroic person he's the the hero is not there necessarily to fight in this particular instance the hero is there to sacrifice he's not far off from steve trevor in that he's presented as the ultimate um you know chiseled man of action but the most heroic thing he does is to give of himself to the point where Everything that he has is is gone in the service of someone else being able to self-actualize. And, you know, he's, he gets to be brought back by magic unicorn powers, but he's still he's still given up, uh, you know, for uh, to, to use his words for a, a second. Happy ending. I was like, Steve Trevor gets to come back because of magic unicorn powers. <laughs> that, well, that, that is Wonder a plot Woman twist of Wonder Woman 1984. <laughs> I did not expect <laughs> Yeah. Be no, right I, back, I writing that fanfic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I derailed you, but uh, carry on. Um, but but yeah, he's you know he's presented as as and he's even shown as like wearing the same clothes as Haggard. He's got the medals like Haggard. He's obviously being groomed to like go out, kill things, make a name for yourself. And His that's how name man- is synonymous with a bitter, twisted Shakespearean king. Mm-hmm. But again, like Sharon said, his his emotional point in the story is to is to be support for other people in order for them to achieve their goals. And that's the best thing that he could possibly do. You know, that's you know, that's what heroes are for is it's not to go out and kill dragons. Mm. It's to, you know, lay literally everything on the line for the sake of someone else, Mm. even if that means you never see what happens afterward. And particularly as he comes very close to. Uh, being a what could have been a face palming dropping of the ball in terms of uh, Amalthea's draw to get back to her herd to find the rest of the unicorns, which is that Leah turning up and being interested in her and attracted to her and wanting to do things to impress her is the first thing that makes her start to think maybe this being a woman stuff is not so bad Mm. (laughs) and it would have been I don't want to say it would have been easy but you would more often expect to see that particular line of of thought in a story become yes she decides that actually he is handsome enough and interesting and engaging enough and hey there's a chap that's enough for me to decide to rewrite my entire story and give up everything that I really am in order to be the thing that people are trying to convince me that I am I would say the little mermaid does that but it's the other way around little mermaid is, is the opposite story where she's always been I said this when we did the show she's always been a human born in a mermaid's body so she's just been waiting to get back to her people and yeah. to be able to well, a, be that. A, yeah, a human born in a mermaid's world that she, the world that she longs for is one that only humans can have. <laughs> um, 
weirdly, one of the reasons I've never really been able to connect with Ariel is that line about, I want to be where the people are. No. <laughs> I'll be in my room reading with a dingle hopper. Absolutely. <laughs> but, you don't want to go down that road. <laughs> yeah. But that's, but yeah, that's not what is happening with Amalthea. Being a human is not natural for her she is willing at this point to start thinking about maybe pushing herself into that shape and accepting what she is now and i am very very glad that the outcome of that was not that she went through with that in fact one of the reasons that she doesn't is because leah won't let her yeah so this all comes about because they walk through a clock after being given uh, instructions by a mary skeleton uh, to to literally walk through time to find the hiding place of the Red Bull who's been hanging around in this uh, castle where he was bound by Haggard. Uh, and then he chases Amalthea out onto the uh, beach. This is when she gets turned back into a unicorn. And uh, Lear gives up his uh, life to, uh, trying to distract the uh, bull and protect her. She eventually pushes the bull back into the sea and the way she's able to overcome it is that the rest of the unicorns storm out of the sea in a kind of breathtaking sequence which uh, mirrors a Japanese painting called The Great Wave of Kanagawa Uh, and I haven't read any research on this that suggests that this is direct but I'm going to go ahead and say that's that, you know, with the Jap- Japanese animators, that's not a mistake. Mm. And it also reminds me of Arwen's magic in, um, in Lord of the Rings, uh, yeah. Fellowship, where she brings the river horses through. And the, all the other unicorns that were st- uh, trapped in the sea uh, storm out of there. The bull is overthrown. What happens? I think he just drowned? disappears into the water. Disappears into the water. They're kind of vague about it. The, the, the castle crumbles and um, poor wretched... Haggard falls into the uh, ocean laughing, possibly just because he's seeing all of these uh, unicorns and it's just making him weirdly happy. Maybe you got your ending that you wanted. He is happy to see them all. But no, no, no. the happiness should derive from him letting them out. out. Mm. The idea being if you let go, Mm. you'll actually be happier than if you clench harder. It's one of the reasons I love all Scrooge stories so much. I don't know what to do. I'm as light as a feather. I'm as happy as an angel. I'm as merry as a schoolboy. A merry Christmas to everybody. A happy new year to all the world. (laughs) Really, for a man who had been out of practice for so many years, it was a splendid laugh. A most illustrious laugh. The father of a long, long line of brilliant laughs. So then all of these... Tiny white unicorns like flow up the canal and back out into the uh, world to, to fill it with uh, magic again and to run off to their individual forests. It's, the road is called the King's Way. The King's Way. Okay. It's quite stark imagery. The world's effectively being fertilised with unicorns. Then Amalthea brings uh, Leah back to life, but she is now... A unicorn, and we get this incredibly bittersweet ending of I Will Remember You. It's the mirror image of what Mommy Fortuna wanted. It was to be remembered by something immortal, to leave her mark. Whereas that wasn't Lear's goal at all, but he will be remembered because of the, the, the positive impact that he made on the unicorn's life. And because she's immortal, she will remember him forever, but in a good way rather than 
you know, what if what Mommy Fortuna was inflicting on the harpy and the unicorn. And again, it's one of those things that you don't really appreciate as a kid because you're not really necessarily all that invested in in a in a romance as you know, as as a kid, it's like, oh, okay, I guess a happy ending sometimes means people get together. But you know, you're with Amalfia from the start. Is like her goal is to free the unicorns, and then she does that, and so you're happy at the end. But once you've had the chance, you know, put some years on you, uh, the 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 I spent some time with this person, and we had these feelings for each other, but there's just no way for us to be together. It's almost Toy Story 4 levels of like, well, maybe staying together for the sake of the kids was a mistake. This isn't a major spoiler, by the way, folks who haven't yet seen Toy Story 4. It's uh, more of just a sharp focus on the themes of Toy Story 4, which is totally worth watching. You know, this sort of like Hmm. weird existential, bittersweet realization that sometimes love doesn't really overcome everything and it's going to end but that's okay because it was still worthwhile. You know, it's one of those things that is sort of sprinkled throughout the movie, but that that last bit where she's they they make it very clear that the spell affects her her memory and her mind and changing the body also changes her mind and that's part of why she starts becoming more human and feeling things and forgetting things and then she's basically this alien creature again, but her biology is changed by the experience. You know, like Schmendrick says, you know, she is the only unicorn who has ever felt love and regret. Thank you. I knew it was a good idea getting you two on. (laughs) Thank you very much. Um, And the world reaches a new balance that's more in line with a bygone one. And and Sharon, you said this was more like a breath? Yeah, the... Again, comparing it to Flight of Dragons and the upshot of the magic that's that's leaving the world in that being that they will take what little magic is left and preserve it in a bubble so that people can see it as a museum piece and be inspired by it. The the sense of what happens to magic in this world is more that as as Haggard captured all the unicorns, that's like the world breathing in constantly until it gets to this sort of breath-held state and now magic being released back into the world is like an out-breath and then that's going to bring life back into the world again and then chances are at some point something will happen to cause the magic to ebb again and then it will flow again and it, it creates much more of a sense of things being cyclical in this world rather than linear. You're describing ice ages. Yeah. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Which folks. Which it could be argued is like winter writ large and winter in some form is essential for land to recover. On our Patreon bonus podcast feed this week, you'll find my quick review of Midsummer. If you've heard what I had to say about Hereditary, you'll know what to expect. I'm in the minority of critics who are not blown away by Ari Aster's creative decisions, and that's putting it lightly. He may one day surprise me, but right now I just want to know what creepy cult stole his cereal as a child. You want to hear about Midsummer in detail? Full spoilers, that is a 45-minute bonus podcast. 
And if you are at the $15 level, you get sponsor credit. So a massive thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, newcomers Connor Kennedy and Brian Novak, John Clayson, Tyler Long, Adam Kilmartin, Joe Kasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dackler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Anything more on The Last Unicorn? Can I recommend a, a piece of music? Please. It's a, it's a cover of the title song by Ninja Sex Party. I was going to say, Ninja Sex Party. Did they phone up Peter S. Beagle and say, we're sorry about our name, but can we please sing this lovely song? Yeah, but Dan Avidan is the one who's singing, and he has this voice that I swear was gifted by the gods. And this cover of The Last Unicorn is amazing. I listen to it a lot, and I cannot recommend it more highly. Then let's finish on that. Okay, folks, so uh, uh, where can people find your work? Uh, I suppose we'll start with Brendan. Yes, you can find me on Twitter at BLC Agnew. You can find me on Synapse, contributing mostly to their Two Cents columns. Uh, The next one is going to be Into the Spider-Verse, and that is going to be next week on C-I-N-A-P-S-E dot C-O. And I also occasionally write longer stuff on my blog at normannerd.blogspot.com. And Theo? Uh, I'm, I'm a voice actor for the New Century Multiverse, and I'm on Twitter at a thousand days of rain, and that's about it. <laughs> Shall we include a little clip here of the time when you played a uh, princess meeting a unicorn in disguise as just a regular foul-tempered speaking horse uh, for the first time? That sounds like fun. It sounds like it's quite appropriate, actually. Okay. Um, And then afterwards, we will uh, finish on the last unicorn song by Ninja Sex Party. (laughs) So uh, next week, we'll be back with... Have a brief hiatus during our commission season to talk about Spider-Man Far From Home. How about we do that? It's good. (laughs) It is very good, Uh, folks. If you haven't seen it yet, see it now. Thank you very, very much to our guests, Brendan Agnew and Theo Lee. Thank you. Thank you. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. What you're about to hear is a couple of minutes from Chapter 10 of The Princess Thieves, my sixth novel. The audio drama featuring here the voices of Theo Lee, Sharon Shaw, Spencer Lieb and Maureen Foley is available on Bandcamp priced $12. Eventually they reached what remained of the ancient banquet hall. Meg rapped on the flagstones three times with her staff and sure enough from the shadows emerged a horse. Gwendolyn had expected a fine thoroughbred stallion, or one clad in full armour to match the surroundings. Instead, what loped towards her was an ordinary and exceedingly scruffy black thing. 
It had an arrogant look in its eye and was swatting lazily at the flies on its mottled backside with an ungroomed tail. Oh, aren't you a handsome thing? Piss off. Oh. I know when I'm being patronised. Meg, don't waste my time again this week. This is a princess of England. Could you be nice just this once? Nope. It talks. Yes. If you succeed in convincing him to stop, tell me how. Would you, Mr. Horse, I mean... Give him this. Thank you. Would you like this apple? Red apples given to princesses by strange old ladies? No, I bloody wouldn't. Do you have a sandwich? I can fetch you some stew. Yummy. You really are quite a deceptively remarkable animal, sir. Just call him the Nag. Sir Nag? That's going to stick. Black Beauty was one of my very favourite books growing up. And if you don't mind my saying so, Meg, it doesn't seem like you take care of the Nag anywhere nearly as diligently as a beast of his intelligence deserves. So many backhanded compliments in there, I don't know where to start. I've tried. Time and again. Haven't I? She has. He won't be brushed, or groomed, or ridden, or have those rusty shoes replaced. Why ever not? I don't like being fussed over, and I can take care of myself. Except when it comes to sandwich making. Except that. So how did you come to learn to talk? Well, it really is a very remarkable story. You see, at an early age, I was bitten by a radioactive linguist. Nag? I'm just a talking horse, all right? (laughs) Well, I... I like you, the nag, and you've cheered me up. Then I've done my job. Away with you. I recall promises of stew. Yes, sir. The nag will return. Maybe not the last, but definitely the worst unicorn. the last